Welcome to this week's Investors Chronicle Personal Finance Podcast. I'm Leonora Walters and joining me today are Kate Bealey, Personal Finance Writer at Investors Chronicle and special guest Lee Robertson, Chief Executive Officer at Investment Quorum. This week's Portfolio Clinic features a couple who hold so many funds that anyone holdings outperformance is likely to be diluted away. Lee, how many holdings should you hold in a fund's portfolio? Well, it, it will come down to personal choice, um, and we do believe very much in diversification. But we think that over-diversification um, will dilute performance, as just been said. So we're, we think that really any portfolio should be holding around about 20 funds or stocks. Okay. And um, you, you mentioned stocks. Um, I mean, can you allow yourself a bit more if you're in, in shares? Because obviously they're not as diversified as funds. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I would say so. Um, of course, funds are just a collection of um, stocks. So yes, you could do with, uh, with uh, stocks and shares. Of course you could. Yeah. Okay. Um, now, when you're assessing your portfolio, I mean, how do you determine as to whether you've got too many holdings? You know, when is too much? I mean, we, we use a rule of thumb, and there's been quite a bit of research on this. Um, the, the problem with diversification is, particularly if you like particular sectors, is often you will have overlap, and diff- different funds are doing very much the same thing with same funds. So we tend to stick to that 20-ish rule, uh, which is about 5% of your portfolio in any one fund. Okay. Now, slowing down a portfolio seems like a really difficult task. What are the main steps you should go through, let's say, if you're needing to do this? Okay. Uh, well, there are, there are a couple of answers here um, that, that, that overlap. There, one of the things, if you're making gains in funds, it's very often worth taking um, taking some of those out, uh, taking your, uh, and if you're making losses, definitely, you can do um, your capital gains tax planning that way. Uh, with funds, of course, just think about what you're trying to achieve. If there are sectors that you are, or funds or stocks that you're holding that are invested in sectors that are not doing very well, current examples, of course, would be emerging markets. Just think about whether you actually want them in there, or if you are going to hold them for the medium to long term. So there's no easy answer to this, but just keep reviewing the portfolio. Is it fit for purpose? Are there things that you could be taking out? Are there losses that you could be harvesting for capital gains tax? And it becomes a bit of a discipline then, and it it makes it easier going forward. Okay. Now, taking out losses of capital gains tax, um, does that apply to ISA and SIP holdings as well? No, it doesn't. Um, It would depend very much depend on the portfolio. If it's it's ISA and... um, and SIPs or pensions, you're really just looking at the, your, your where you're invested and how that's particularly doing and whether you want to maintain those within those uh, those tax-wrapped uh, advantageous investments. Okay. Um, and um, just, just sticking just for a bit longer with the subject of CGT, we've seen some really big market falls lately. Is it a good opportunity for people to capitalise on their um, losses at the moment? Or is there a risk of, you know, selling out at the bottom, um, perhaps having bought a fund um, at, you know, a higher price? Well, yeah, this is a problem. It's going to come down to an individual circumstances. Not everyone will have enough gains anyway to to breach the the capital gains tax allowance. You've got to be careful when you sell losses, of course, because you are just crystallising. Um, it's something that you bought more expensively. That's why a constant portfolio review is so important to make sure you've got the optimum chance of getting it right. Okay. Now, when you're deciding, so you've decided who, you know, um, your strategy, when it comes down to the individual funds, how do you decide if a fund should stay or go? 
what are the you know what the steps for assessing the fund yeah this will very often come down to personal choices but i think it's that having that discipline on the portfolio are these sectors or investment styles that i like do i like this manager is he delivering what i thought he would deliver to the portfolio um, is he no longer delivering? And of course, funds come and go in in attractiveness um, just because markets change. Sometimes the fund manager himself will change. So I think the whole point is just to be that continually on top of the portfolio, just making sure that you're following what's going on within it. Okay. Now, we've been talking about over-diversification, but on the flip side, obviously, you don't want to be under-diversified. So when you're going through this process of slowing it down, um, you know, and turning things over, how do you ensure that you maintain decent diversification? I I think you do work for that rule of 20 to 30. If you're getting too low below that, you're under-diversifying. It's it's fairly simple, I think. Um, Too few funds or too few stocks, you're just too exposed. Therefore, stick to that rule of about 20 to 30. Okay. Now, one solution that um, people, um, some, some people suggest are, are multi-asset funds. Um, multi-asset funds cover several areas in one fund. Are they a good solution? Because they, let's say they certainly market themselves as a, a kind of a one-stop shop to investment. Yes, they do. Um, we don't use them so much. Um, but I think for, for the right type of investor who is perhaps less engaged or has less time to be all over the top of their portfolio doing what we've just suggested, they may make a, they may make a good um, pit stop for them. You've got to be watch the costs on them. Sometimes they're a wee bit dearer um, because of the way they invest. And the, the other thing I would point out is try not to buy too many of them if that's the, if that's the route you're going, because you find that most of them are doing pretty much the same. So all you're doing is replicating, therefore you're reducing your diversification. Okay, so how, how many roughly should you hold? On multi, multi-asset, uh, depending on what they're doing, I probably wouldn't hold more than three. Um, it's, it's, it, it will come down to what the individual investor wants, but I think it's very easy to just be replicating through different funds what, what, uh, what they're doing, so not too many at all. Okay. Now, one of the other experts who commented in the portfolio suggested basing it around a general tracker fund and then adding in some sector theme focused funds i think an approach that some people call core and satellite um obviously using um a passive fund as part of it do you think this um is a good way to construct your portfolio it's certainly one way to construct it i mean the good points of trackers and etfs are their cost they're very liquid, um, although there were some issues about liquidity last week with so much volatility, but they're generally very, very liquid. They tend to be much cheaper than active funds, so lots of people favour them. Uh, core and satellite works both ways. Sometimes you have a core of active and then you have satellite of ETFs. I think it's not a bad way, but you've got to be very careful in times of real volatility uh, and also look at what you're investing in. The FTSE 100 at the moment, for instance, I mean, that's that's a very much used uh, tracker fund, but of course it's holding lots of mining stocks uh, which are very exposed to the dollar and emerging markets, so they're not doing particularly well. So just be careful about what you're investing in through these trackers. Okay, well that's interesting because it actually brings me to um, our next subject. Um, after the brief respite of last week's global markets, including those in the UK, um, there's been more turbulence again. Now, it might seem like there's nowhere to hide, but Kate's been looking at some funds that have succeeded in smoothing the plunges. Kate, what are these funds and how have they fared for the recent market turbulence? 
Um, well, I was looking at low volatility ETFs. Um, this is a kind of segment of smart beta ETFs, which are ETFs which kind of replicate their indices by anything other than market cap. So try and take you know, the highest value stocks, or in this case, the least volatile stocks. And it's a really interesting area because obviously it sounds like the dream. You know, you've got the index without any of the volatility, but everyone's been a bit sceptical because most of them have quite a short track record. So they just haven't, you know, been through the ringer enough to, to test them out. So this was a really good time to see how they've done. And actually they've done very well. I mean, they, you know, they have fallen. Nothing has been... Um, safe from this market crash over the past couple of months but they've definitely fallen by a lot less than their kind of I guess plain vanilla counterparts um, in some cases kind of half of the losses and and that is across the board I looked at six um, and I looked at indexes like uh, the MSCI world and then MSCI world minimum volatility S&P 500 and S&P 500 minimum volatility and then uh, one in Europe and um, and then the Ossium FTSE 100 minimum variance ETF. Now every single one has been less volatile on three different measures. Um, so I looked at volatility as a, as a standard deviation measure and that is just how much the returns vary from, from the average. I also looked at maximum drawdown, which is something where you look at the, the drop from the peak returns trough and just and see how big that, that drop has been. And I also looked at downside risk, which is something that um, analysts use to, to just look at the risk of, of big falls in bad markets. Now, on all of those three metrics, these six low volatility ETFs have outperformed their, I guess, volatile or normal, normal, you know, counterparts. So it's it's quite impressive, really. And I think not not exactly what I was expecting to see, and not what a lot of analysts were expecting. So it's it's good news for. Yeah, I mean that 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 does sound impressive. So how do they actually go about achieving? You know, what's their construction that you know achieves this low volatility? Well, it's it, all of these kind of smart beta strategies. It, they're quite research based, but and they do it in slightly different ways. So the two ways of doing low volatility is either you you take an index like the FTSE, and then you look at each stock and kind of judge how volatile it is and a range of metrics, and then either you just take the stocks which are least volatile, put them in an index. Um, as as the highest weighting, and then there you have it. Or you go down the minimum variance route, which is about taking the portfolio, um, which is the least volatile, but looks at the correlation of stocks to each other. So you're either looking at the least volatile stocks and putting them together, or the least volatile portfolio as a whole. Um, so it's all quite kind of mathematical and quite complex. Okay. But, you know. Yeah. Now, now this all sounds a bit too good to be true, Lee. Um, what What's your take on these uh, low volatility ETFs? Well, it's it, it's it's really interesting because they've got such a short track record, and we've all been watching them. Because the thing in the investment world is, we, we are all, whether we're investors or advisors, we're all looking for that nirvana. Mm. So I think we've all been watching Smart Beta to see if it would do what it what it said it will do. And it's interesting that with just so much volatility last week that it has managed to deliver this. So I think it will probably gain traction here. They're much more used in the States, but they are gaining traction here. And we, we look at them quite closely. So this is all part of the research thing about whether you do diligence, about whether you're going to use them. I think investors will be pleased with the results from last week. Okay. Now you're saying you're looking at them. Do you actually use them yet? And do you have any reservations about them? Um, 
we don't use them yet. Uh, mm-hmm. They're still in our due diligence pot, and we've we've looked at them. Um, we've looked at them long and hard. Do I have reservations? Not particularly until we get a bit more track record. And it's it's interesting because we've had such we've had such a decent long bull run, and they were launched during the bull. And of course, the investment world is littered with funds that were meant to do something when the markets turned and they didn't. So I think this is actually good news for Smart Beta if they have delivered last week. Okay. Kate, did you um, come across any sceptics? Um, obviously, there's short time swing, so I don't know if yeah, well, um, I mean, I, I, analyze them. I think there are a lot of sceptics um, generally and for, for the reasons that Lee said. I mean, particularly in other areas of smart beta, I think low volatility is one of the, the best understood and maybe um, one of the ones which people are more confident about. But there are a whole series of other kinds of smart beta which definitely do sound a bit too good to be true and which take... A you know variety of factors, so trying to take the highest quality stocks and and the best value stocks and the least volatile stocks, and the more kind of factors you try and chuck at something, I guess the more you have to be a bit suspicious because things get quite complicated. Um, so people are skeptical of whether this can work in a practical sense as as well as in a kind of theoretical you know um, mm. research paper sense. And also, a lot of people are wary of, of the data which these providers give you because they will show you data and which goes back kind of 10 years, which is based on three months of performance or something. Um, so I think that is that is something to bear in mind that when you're looking at these, a lot of them might look like they have a really long track record. They, they don't. That is just modelled data. Okay, right. Well, time will tell. Mm. Now, um, Kate, um, you've been looking at another area. Um, when you invest via a broker or platform, even though you choose your shares, um, typically these will be held in a nominee account. Um, this means that you are not the legal owner and will forgo rights such as the ability to vote at company meetings um, unless you hold your shares via what is known as a Crest account, whereby you are the legal owner of all the usual rights. Now, I understand that getting a Crest account has been harder. Kate, why is it so hard for private investors to get a Crest account? Um, well, basically, there's there's just fewer and fewer brokers and platforms that sponsor these personal Crest accounts, um, which is, yes, where you're the legal owner of the shares and it's your name on the company, um, on the share issuer you know, register. Um, but you do have to, in order to do this, you, you have to go via a platform which agrees to sponsor that for you. And there are just fewer and fewer platforms, brokers, um, willing to do that. Okay. Um, which brokers do offer them? There's very few now. Um, I mean, there, there did used to be more. Um, so, for example, Charles Stanley used to used to offer it, but now they don't to new customers. Um, because And one of the kind of hinge for this piece or, or, or the hook was, was that um, Alliance Trust Savings have just announced... Um, that they won't be sponsoring personal crest accounts or membership for new customers, which they've acquired through buying up StockTrade. Um, StockTrade did offer this. Um, so Charles Stanley has said they will take on customers from StockTrade, but they won't offer it to new customers. Um, Killick, broker, does offer it, and Redmain Bentley um, and Fidelity um, as well. And that's probably one of the lowest cost ones, but most other people don't. Yeah. Now, obviously, most people are going to be in a nominee account. Um, so what can you do to maximise your shareholder rights in a nominee account? 
Well, what you can do is that there's kind of a variety of ways. You you can ask them to be appointed as a proxy for the shares you hold and in order to kind of exercise your rights and vote in AGMs and that kind of thing. Um, you can get a letter of representation, similar thing, um, and and then you can vote via proxy forms. But then also there are a number of brokers who will kind of offer you a free service where you can kind of opt in to having having rights and then you can opt in to receive um, all of the shareholder materials and you'll be notified of upcoming votes on some of them for example Killick and TD Direct and the share center will let you will let you vote and they will keep you up to date which is the crucial thing otherwise you have to kind of you know be contacting your broker or platform every time or every month to see what's coming up and that's quite hard to keep on top of obviously Okay. Lee, do you think it's actually important for investors to legally own their own shares or is a nominee account adequate? I mean, we, we have very little of experience of this because we, we invest um, through funds for clients. Um, for cl- clients who are very, very engaged in the corporate process and want to take up their full shareholders' rights, I think it's right that they seek to have their own Crest account. But for those who just want to hold the shares as part of a portfolio of growing wealth, um, I think it's probably less important. Okay. This brings us to the end of uh, this week's personal finance podcast. So it just remains to thank Kate Bailey, personal finance writer at Investors Chronicle, and special guest Lee Robertson, chief executive at Investment Quorum. You can read more about slimming down your portfolio, low volatility ETFs, and Crest accounts in this week's issue of Investors Chronicle. Thank you for listening and have a great weekend. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.